Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Well, good morning. We have been going through um, the book of Matthew considering the, the Messiah, the coming of Messiah, and Matthew's presentation of that to the um, to the Jewish people that he lived amongst. And we've considered um, in that the Jesus' um, coming, the forerunner of him, which was John the Baptist. We considered his message, presentation of the kingdom. Um, we have been moving into now the instruction phase of his this ministry, and that is that he knows he's getting ready to leave, and he's preparing his disciples for that moment. And so, again, instruction comes in two different ways. There's the, the verbal instruction, there's the, the teaching, there's, there's doctrine. So you sit down with somebody and you do Bible study. But the reality is that most instruction comes through your lifestyle. You've probably heard the cliché as well as I have many times, I'd rather see a sermon sermon than hear one any day. It's more what you do than what you say. You can say what you want, but if you live a different way, then what you say is, is just kind of goes away. And so Jesus is doing both of these things. So last two weeks we considered some of his teachings in the, the, the teaching, the instructions of the parable of the kingdom. And so in the parable of the kingdom... He gives them information about the kingdom and what things were going to be like. Today, we see um, another facet of that, and that is just how he lives his life and how he deals with issues that are going to go on in his life. And specifically, we're going to talk about trials. Trials are not something that we want to look forward to. And that's why, it was to me, as we sang it as well with my soul, I was thinking of the fact, you know, when it said, with confidence, sing with confidence, you know, because the reality is that in life, if I really don't believe God, if I really don't believe that God is faithful, and if I don't believe that God will be beside me all the way, then as I go through life, there's going to be what? Anxiety, fear, consternation, because the, the, the taking care of any of the trials is going to be on who? On me. That's exactly right, okay? But if I know God, and I know that God knows me, and that he loves me, and that I, he never leaves me nor forsakes me, then if I know that, then I've got to remember that on a daily basis. And so Jesus, I say mimics that for the disciples, but that's not the word I want to use, but he models it, thank you. He models that for his disciples, for them to see. And before we get into chapter 14, there's just a little bit of verses there in chapter 13 where we really have the first of these trials that I want to uh, just briefly mention, and that is, it's the trial of rejection. Because Jesus goes back to where? His hometown. Now, there's great debate on what his hometown is. Some, uh, you read some commentaries, they talk about Capernaum, because that was his adopted town. I don't think it was Capernaum, I think it's Nazareth. Why would you think that, that I think that's Nazareth? You had to think like me now. So why do I think it's Nazareth? The Bible refers to him as Jesus from Nazareth. Okay, Jesus from Nazareth. But why? But he had, he adopts Capernaum as his as his home. Okay, so like when they go to the house, so Peter's house is really you know. But why do I think that this 
And so you got to think like Bob. Channel Bob right now. Anyways. Good. Good. It's good time. Like where you grew up. Isn't, isn't, isn't he the son of the carpenter? Isn't Mary his mother? Aren't his sisters here with us? And so they give all this detail. Okay, so again, God gives us what? Details in his word for a reason. Okay, so I don't think this is Capernaum. I think he went back to his, his hometown. For me, that's going back to Pittsburgh, right? Okay, for you, it's whatever. He went back to Nazareth. And he goes into their, their synagogue. Now, word has already gotten to, to, to Nazareth about his, the, the wonderful works that he's been able to do, accomplish. Now, you know, again, they don't necessarily know he's God yet, right? They see him as a what? A powerful teacher, maybe a prophet at best, right? But they know of these miracles that have been worked through him. And yet when he goes there and he teaches in their synagogue, what's their response? They're astonished. They're astonished, but then what? Offended. They're offended. They're offended by him. They reject him. They're offended by him. Rather than embracing the messianic ministry that God has, has one of their homeboys. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except for around his family, around his hometown. And so, what do you do with the rejection that comes for the ministry of God? It could be the rejection of your own family. That you know what God wants you to do, but your family doesn't see it your way. Do you serve God? Or do you serve man? Paul says in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, he says that... If I, own, if, I, if I look for the pleasure of men, then I'm not serving God. So I just want to encourage you, before we even get into the, the main three points of chapter 14, that there's a trial. Jesus deals with this trial by doing what? How does Jesus respond to this trial? He left. He left, okay? But he left for what purpose? To continue the work of the Lord that God has for him. So again, I understand he's God in the flesh, okay? But but he also has a purpose. Remember, he says he came to do the work of the Father, right? And so instead of being discouraged, instead of saying, wow, you know, whatever, he continued on the work. He shook, the, if you would, the dust off his feet, and he continued on doing what God had called him to do. Again, it's like we talked about in the book of Ezekiel with Sunday school, right? When God called Ezekiel... Ezekiel was to go out and proclaim the message. He wasn't responsible for how the people received it. Whether they accept it or whether they reject it, you proclaim the message. And so Jesus models that for his disciples, okay? That regardless, they're, they're even rejecting me, they're going to reject you, just continue to do the work. But we go into the, um, the, the three that are in 14, and so you've got to understand then, building this case of what's going on here, that... Jesus is rejected, right, in Nazareth, okay? Um, and during the same time frame, John has been arrested, okay? Who is John? He's the forerunner of Christ. Who else is he? His cousin. How far apart are they? Six months. He's a close cousin. When's the first time they met? When they were in the womb. Remember? Because Mary got there and John the Baptist did what? He leaped for joy. 
How cool is that, right? Okay, so um, Mary and Elizabeth must have been close because when Mary was kind of getting away from Nazareth because she was with a child, but yet she wasn't married, do you ever wonder why she went to see Elizabeth? Okay, probably was, you know, that was the kind of get out of Dodge for a little bit, right? But she could have went multiple different places, but she went to live with Elizabeth. What a coincidence, right? And so not a coincidence, I, I think. So I think Jesus and John probably had a relationship growing up. They probably knew each other, okay? And so then John became the forerunner of Jesus. Now, it didn't take Jesus by surprise. He knew that. They were, they were again, um, prophetic um, occurrences that were there. But Jesus is fully divine, and yet he's fully human. It didn't take Jesus by surprise that John would be arrested. It didn't take Jesus by surprise, I'm sure. He knows everything. He knew Nathaniel while he was under the fig tree, right? It didn't take him by surprise that John would be killed. But yet we see the effect that it has upon, upon Jesus, being fully human. So the first thing we see in this is the circumstances of John's death. I want you to think about this. Who was John? He's a servant of God, yes? A prophet. Jesus said among the prophets there was what? None greater. None greater. And yet, how did he die? He got beheaded. In prison. So he'd been in prison. He finally gets his head cut off. <coughs> Why did he get his head cut off? Because of a dancing girl. Because of a in an adulterous mom. Because Herod had his brother's wife, and John had proclaimed against it, had declared it as sin. And they didn't like it. So they arrested him, and they threw him in prison. Based upon this account, who do you think was behind that arrest? The mom. Herodias. That's exactly right. Okay? How do we know that? Because Herod is, is sorrowful for this. But his wife is the one who wants the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And so, John goes through this ministry. It's a quick ministry. The only thing that John was supposed to accomplish in his ministry for God was what? Proclaim the, the coming of the Lord. When he was asked, well, who are you? John chapter 1. Well, who are you? Are you Elijah? I'm not Elijah. Are you, the, are you the prophet? I'm not the prophet. Then who are you? I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. And so we read in John 1, the Lord, but we know that that's a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 40, and that he would come to prepare the way not of a little L, little O, little R, little D, but he was coming to prepare the way of capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and that's Yahweh. Amazing. What an opportunity, what a ministry for him to have. And yet it was what? A very abbreviated life. He had fulfilled his purpose. And now the end of his days had come. 
That was the end of John, right? Yes or no? No. Good. Good. This is correct. No, it's not the end of John. From from man's perspective, they what? They destroyed him. But from God's perspective, he got to be in the kingdom. Do you get it? So Jesus then, we look at Jesus, and we see the preciousness of John's death. Jesus is sorrowful. Now, we read in the Psalms, precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints. Who is Yahweh? Huh? God? Jesus. Yeah! Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. Do you get this? I mean, this is kind of hard, right? He's fully God, fully human, right? Here's Yahweh incarnate on the, on the earth in his cousin in the flesh, his forerunner, his proclaimer, his herald, is killed. And to Yahweh in the flesh, this death is what? Very precious. So precious that Jesus immediately wants to get away from everything. He needs to get time alone. The humanity of Christ. There were times in Christ's life that he just needed to get away. He just wanted to get away. He took his disciples and said, let's go find a secluded spot. We'll get there in a moment, but we know that when he gets there, it's not what? Secluded. That's important for the next thing, this next trial. This is the trial of death, though. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Your rod and your staff will comfort me. But go up a couple verses. How does that verse begin? Yahweh is my shepherd. Who is this? Yahweh in the earth. He's modeling out his own. Yahweh is my shepherd. He leads me in green fields. Literally, it's the... Um, um, my mind's blanking out here. In the desert, there is a oasis. He leads me in, an o- in a lush oasis. Literally, the Hebrew is talking. A lush oasis in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the wilderness. Among calm, tranquil waters. And then we're told that he leads me in the path of righteousness, and yea, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He's the one. Yahweh himself is the one who's going to bring me this peace. Who's going to bring me this tranquility? Who's going to bring me this rest? So Yahweh, when he's on the earth, he finds, looks for seclusion. Again, he doesn't get it. However, at the end, and we'll talk about the, the feeding of the 5,000 in a moment, we note at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, what does he do? He sends his disciples away. And then he himself does what? He goes up into the mountaintop and spends the night in prayer. He's not weeping, although I'm sure he did cry. He's not moaning, oh Lord, why does this have to happen to me? But rather he goes to fellowship with his father. And I ask myself, where do I turn when I'm struggling with trials in my life? Do I turn to myself? Do I bemoan 
my life do I turn to my family and look for solace? Do I turn to the Lord and do I look to the Lord for the total solace is there? And so we memorized last fall Philippians 4, right? We didn't go beginning of verse 4, but it says rejoice in the Lord how often? Always. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation, your lifestyle be made known to all men. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. And be anxious for nothing, but in all things through what? Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And so Jesus himself models the teaching that were given to us. That while he is going through these anxious moments, quote unquote, if you would, these trials, he's going to his father. But then, let's go back then to this time that he's going to be secluded because within the trial, there's another trial. And I get this one because um, Stacy says that it's different here, but I guarantee you at 1230, don't talk to me because my brain is gone, okay? I'm fried. And so if you ever want to give me information at 1230 at the end of the service, please write it down or text me later, okay? Because I won't remember. I mean, it's a very rare moment. And in fact, if you give it to me and I stick it in a shirt pocket, it may go through the wash, okay? So just, just be very careful when you give me information because by the end, you're fried. I get, I get that, you know, um, how that happens. And I'm an introvert, and so, um, so usually being in front of people for so long, I'm just kind of drained anyway, and I'm just looking to escape to my whatever hole I can find. I've learned in the military um, what my role was as an officer and that I couldn't be that introvert, and I had to be who I was supposed to be. And so I had a lot of good training, and so I understand my role, quote-unquote, does it make sense, okay? As you ought to understand your role as, as, as in the body of Christ, that we encourage one another to love and good works, right? And that it's not all about me, it's all about us, it's all about God. Does that make sense? And so I've got to be careful of that. And so Jesus, again, and I learned this from my Lord, who, he was looking for a what? Quiet spot. He had every right to want a quiet spot. He had been rejected by his own family. His, his, his cousin, his dearly, dearly beloved cousin, um, is, is beheaded. And now he just wants to get away for a little bit. And while he goes, gets on a boat to go across the water, everybody what? They guesses where he's going to go. And they hightail it along the path to get there before he does. And as he pulls into this secluded spot, maybe a spot that he kind of hit at before, you know? All of a sudden he gets to this secluded spot, and what does he see? Stalkers. Stalkers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what would have been your reaction at this moment? Uh. Exactly. Take the boat back out. Let's find another spot. Or, I'm Jesus, and so I'm not just fully human. I'm also fully God, right? And he can speak out with a voice of authority, right? And so he goes out, because later on we know he gets rid of them all, Right? He gets on the shore and says, what are you guys here for? Do you not understand I wanted my own time? Get out of here. <coughs> that might have been Bob. Anyways, no, Bob was Bob's not confrontational. I probably would have said, hey, let's pull the boat back out <laughs> and head down, the, down someplace. I don't know. But that's not what my Lord did. In the midst of a trial, he's faced with a, another trial. He wants alone time. 
But he looks at the multitude, and how does he see the multitude? With compassion. He sees the multitude, and he looks on them with compassion. He saw their need. He didn't look at his own need. Philippians chapter 2, right? Let everything be done without strife and vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the very morphe, the very nature, the very form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. He was God. They ought to be serving him. They ought to be worrying about his needs, his desires. But yet he laid all that aside. Because their need was more important than his need. They had just walked all this distance just to hear his teaching, just to receive a healing. And he wasn't going to turn them away. I wonder how many times it is that I I don't elevate your needs or the needs of others in the neighborhood or the needs of my family because I'm more interested in only meeting my perceived, we can go there, my perceived needs. Because too many times my wants, my greeds, become in my brain my needs. And I'm willing to disregard the true need of somebody else because of my own greed, my own lust and desires. Jesus saw their need, but then he also valued their need. He didn't just see it, but he placed them above himself. That's really what happens. When I see somebody's need, and I make a decision to whether I'm going to do what I want to do, or do what they need. Aren't you glad that Jesus elevated your need above his own? He didn't have to come and die. I always think about that. I mean, he's God. He could have done this any way he wanted to. Salvation could be, again, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And there's only a thousand flags up there. And the first thousand who get it, get to be with God. If he wanted to do that, could he have done it? He could have. But he didn't do it that way. God determined before the foundations of the world were laid that he would come. That he would meet our needs by elevating our need above his own. That he would die. And so in Philippians 2, where that ends, but becoming a servant, learning obedience even to the point of death of the cross. He did that for me. He did that for you. He did that for these, this multitude that's there. But in that, he works out a test for his disciples <clears throat> in the midst of this thing. And so he, he heals them, he teaches them, it gets to be the end of the day, and he realizes what? They need to feed them before they send them away. They're getting ready to send them away, but these people have been what? 
fasting all day. Now, whether they had their own snacks, whether they brought their own food along, whether they went, I don't know how it all played out. But I like to think of the fact they fasted all day. They fasted all day because they wanted to be with Jesus. And again, to ask yourself, would you have been that crowd and left everything and traveled that far just so you could be with Jesus all day? Would you have given up food all day just so you could be with Jesus all day? You had no assurance that you were going to be fed even at the end of the day. He could have just sent you back home. Had he ever fed the multitude before? No. No, this is the first time. So he hadn't done that. So you can't go, well, he's fed the multitude before, maybe he'll feed us. That hasn't happened that way before. We don't know what happened on the Sermon on the Mount, but we're not told that he fed the multitude there. So they came, and they wanted just to be with Jesus. To see his healing. To hear his teaching. And at the end of the day, Jesus tells his disciples, give them something to eat. Because disciples wanted to do what? Just get rid of them. (laughs) All right, Lord. All right. We've gone through this interruption to the schedule. Now just what? Send them away. You feed them. What? Could you imagine that? You feed them. I mean, it's not even covered dish Sunday. I was nervous last week. I walked into the kitchen and I went, Ooh, we've got a lot of people here today. But God is true. He never, never, never have we ever not had enough. He always multiplies. But this is worse than that. I mean, it wasn't even covered this Sunday, right? It wasn't even people. We had food coming. We've got what? How much do they have? Five loaves in. Two fish. How many people? 5,000 plus. Not counting the women and the children. So let's say there's 7,500 to 10,000. Five loaves of bread. Now, they're not the loaves of bread that you're picturing from Kroger. Okay, we're talking about little loaves of bread, okay, little bitty ones, and two fish. We're not talking about the big, big blue tunas or whatever, okay, you know, where you see those on the big um, buffets where you go and just pull off some, you know, whatever. But we're talking about the little, you know, fish coming from the, from the, the lake there. And you got a picture of the disciples thinking, well, we, we got enough for ourselves maybe to survive here, but you want us to what? They had an opportunity right now to believe. To believe that Jesus was able to do exceeding abundantly above all that they could ever ask or think. What had they seen already? What had they seen? Not just this day, but think about a couple months now. We've been going through this. What have they seen? Healings, exorcisms. I mean, seen, the, the, the storm has, we'll talk about this in a moment again, right? They've seen the storm get stopped, right? They've seen the, the demons getting thrown into the pig, and, and the pigs running into, the, uh, into, the, into the, the abyss, into the Sea of Galilee, right? And yet, Jesus says, you feed them, and instantly they think what? You're crazy. You're crazy, yeah. How? But you're crazy. We can't do that. Think about it. If Jesus, and this, is, this has been a mantra of my life for the last 15, 18 years. I, I really, 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I, I, I said, with the home improvement business, I mean, that wasn't mine. You guys know this, right? But I, my, my think, God, if you put it before me, then you're going to show me how to do this. I believe it. I can do all things. How many things? All things. I can do all things, but not, it doesn't stop there, because I can't do all things. Make sense? But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If Jesus asks me to do something, then he will give me the power in whatever else it takes. The wisdom to accomplish the task he gives me to do. That's the lesson these guys are going to learn. Jesus asked them to feed 5,000 plus people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And they looked at it just like we look at it. Uh, anybody got a Walmart card? How much you got in your credit card? Woo. Then Kroger will sell this much? Could you imagine we had 5,000 people here on a Sunday and we're having covered dish dinner and we weren't planning on them? We got enough to feed 50 people and we got 5,000. Think about it. What would it be our instant reaction? Popeyes, Pizza Hut. I mean, we're, we're out there trying to scour food to put us together. I'd cancel it. I'd cancel the dinner. <laughs> come over. Hey, you guys that know, come over to my house. Send them to the marshes. Send them to the marshes. That's right. Do we believe? That's why I, this, is, this is so impactful for me. Because as I come through this, I continually have to ask myself, with these crises of faith, do I believe this? Am I willing to live this? What would I do if I was Peter, James, John, Philip, Andrew, Nathaniel? Uh, uh, Lord, um, do you not do math? <laughs> yeah, I'm a math major, right? So I'm applying principles of math here. Okay, God, you know, we were... Not. And so what does Jesus do? Give it to me. Their response was one of unfaithfulness or disbelief. But Jesus then says, give me the stuff. So they give him the five loaves and the two bread, or the five loaves and the two fish. What does he do with it? Say it again. He blesses it. Don't forget the blessing. We always think we multiplies it. The first thing he does is what? He thanks God for it. He thanks God for it. He blesses it. And then he gives it to the disciples. This is exciting. He gives it to the same ones who said they couldn't do it. Isn't this fun? I mean, what did he do? He brought, did, he, did he break the bread? So that there was five, and now it became what? Ten, right? And there are how many fish? Two, so that... Adds up to what? Twelve. Okay? So did every disciple either have a half a loaf or a fish? You know, I don't know. I mean, did, did he break them up into twelves and have the, the baskets? I don't know how they did this. Okay? But I, I, I think to myself, i got twelve disciples there. He, he breaks it up. He has twelve portions. And he says, okay, now go feed the people. He doesn't take no for it. He says, I'll take over. You guys said you can't do it, so I'm going to show you how this is done. So he thanks the Lord for it, he gives it to the disciples, and he sends them out, and they got to go amongst the people. What do you think they're seeing as, as, they, as they give it amongst the people? 
The basket's never empty. How does it happen? Do you imagine, do you remember with Elijah, with the, the, the widow, with the, the, the wheat and the oil? She comes out, and Elijah sees her, because God sent him to her. She doesn't know that, right? And he sees her, and he says, hey, what are you getting ready to do? She says, well, I'm getting ready to, to, to make use up the rest of our, our wheat and make our last loaf, and then we're going to die. We're going to eat it and die. And Elijah says, well, before you do that, make a small loaf for me. How cruel! <laughs> You're going to die anyway, so make a loaf for me. Now, I know that's not the thought process, but it was a test of her faith. And what does she do? She makes it. And because she makes it and lets this guy live with her then, what happens? The wheat never runs out, the oil never runs out, until the famine is over. How does that happen? It's called a miracle. It's something only God can do. He can do exceeding abundantly above all that you ever ask or think. When I was in seminary, my, my expenses were $10 more than my income on paper. Just was. Whenever I tithe, and I'm not making a statement on tithing, okay? But this is for Bob and his relationship with him. Whenever I tithed, I always had more than enough in overflowing. Whenever I got nervous and I started paying bills, I never had enough to give a tithe. And I never had anything else over. I'm a math guy. I can't figure this out. It has bewildered me for 30-something years in my relationship with the Lord. I can't figure it out. I can't figure out my bank account sometimes. Because it doesn't make sense. There are points I feel like I should be overdrawn. I mean, there were times when we first started, I got, what, $200 a month or whatever? When we first started, it was just, you know, how does this play out? I had five jobs, and I wasn't making a whole lot. And yet, I never, never, never couldn't pay a bill. I don't get it. But God is always able to make the wheat continue to come, and the oil continue to come. It may be the, and yes, I think this sometimes, the shampoo bottle... I mean, there was once, I remember this, I'm thinking, how long is this prowl bottle going to last? I felt like the widow with her oil. And I may have been shampoo, but shampoo costs money. There's lots of little things. You don't have to have your furnace worked on. The kids don't have to go to the doctors. Yada, yada, yada. There's all these different ways that, that God has that he continues to add to your pantry, quote unquote, if you would. And so... Jesus, God in the flesh, takes these same guys who thought, we can't do this. This is, this is undoable. And he makes them be the agents of his miracle. How cool is that? Have you ever been an agent of a miracle? Have you ever watched God work in your life in a miraculous way? Again, I can only share Bob's testimony. You can share your own. I remember praying one morning, God, I need... Some funds. I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I want more time for the ministry, and, and, and I, I just need to reduce the workload. At lunchtime, I had a check for $6,000 in my mailbox, and it came from Europe. And I called the people the, the next morning. Many of you heard this before. And I talked to the wife, and she quoted my quiet time journal the day before. 
verbatim. It was nuts. She said, we got this inheritance. We've been praying what God would have us to do with it. And God laid it on our heart that you needed more time for the ministry. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And she quoted my journal, my prayer. I, my, I write down a prayer response to God every day. And she quoted my prayer response the day before. Before I ever said the prayer, they sent the check. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ever ask or think. Even in the face of your trials. The magnitude of the miracle. So they got five loaves, two fish. He breaks the, the, the bread apart and gives it to them. But in the end, again, he turns to his agents, his disciples, and he tells them to do what? Now go pick up all the, the, the scraps. Because everybody's eating all they wanted. They've eaten all they wanted. And you just got stuff laying around. And they pick up what? Twelve baskets full of scraps. They didn't even have twelve baskets when they started. But now everybody's eating. And they got twelve baskets. God is able to do a seeding abundantly above all that you ever ask or think. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God can multiply? I mean, God loves a what? Cheerful giver. The word cheerful is the word hilarious. Literally in the Greek, it's the word we get the word hilarious. It's the Greek word haleot. And so he loves, it's I think a hyena. You know? <laughs> he loves a cheerful, hilarious giver. Why? Because you know that you can never outgive God. You can't do it. So, what was a trial becomes a huge what? Blessing, an opportunity to see the work of God transpire. If I was on that boat, I would have never potentially seen this blessing. Because I wouldn't have wanted the trial. I would have been looking to try to get, away, get rid of that trial. But Jesus embraced it. Saw their needs and watched God do a miracle through him. I understand he's God. But through these 12 disciples as well, they got to experience something they never would have experienced otherwise. Well, then we go into the storm at the sea. And the first thing I want you to see is Jesus led these guys into the storm. I want you to think about this. At the end of this feeding of the 5,000, he puts them in the boat and he says, go on before me and I'll catch up with you later. Did you ever wonder, how's he going to catch up with them? Was he going to walk on, on, on the land? Was he going to go on the path? I mean, what were they thinking? Okay? But apparently he's probably sending them back to Capernaum, right? These guys are fishermen. So Bethsaida, where they were at, is in northern, um, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And, and Capernaum was just around the bend. Okay? So this is an unfamiliar territory for them. So he's just sending them back home. It's been a long day. We didn't get to have our time. You guys go back while I spend my time alone. However it plays out. But Jesus knew. Do you think Jesus knew? What was getting ready to happen? And yet he did what? He sent them right into the middle of the storm. They may not have known it was coming. Because remember we talked about that. Storms can come on very suddenly in the Sea of Galilee. Okay? They may not have known it was coming, but he knew it was coming. So when you're going through a storm of life, 
you can take comfort in knowing that what? He didn't know about it. I mean, not just know about it, but he what? Well, potentially ordained it. He at least allowed you to go through it. He could have what? He could have prevented it. He could have told the disciples, hey man, a storm's coming in tonight, why don't you guys hang out here? I'm going to go up in the mountain, but you guys can make a, make a fire, get yourself comfortable, because the storm's coming. He didn't do that. He told them to go in the boat. He ordained that one, if you would. That's an ouch, isn't it? We don't want to think of the fact that God allows us to go into storms or wants us at times to experience a storm. But it's what we're going to learn from the storm that's extremely important. Because as they're in the storm, Jesus is praying. Jesus comes to them in the middle of the night. I wonder how long, we're not given a whole lot of details about this, but I... I believe that they're at the end of their strength, that they've been rowing all night, and they can't accomplish the task anymore. The storm came. They had to work harder at it. They couldn't accomplish it. Now, was there ever a storm that they were in before that we've read about? What was the difference between that storm and this storm? Jesus was on the boat. And when they decided they couldn't accomplish the task, they went and they woke Jesus up. But Jesus isn't what? He isn't on the boat. He isn't with them. Or so they what? Thought. They're still gleaning, they're still learning about the love of their Savior for them. And so there they are, they're striving, 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 striving. And I wonder, was there a moment, because I don't read this, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but I wonder, I'm reading between the lines here, if there was a moment when Peter or somebody was crying out, Lord, where are you? Did you ever ask that? And Jesus what? He came. Not necessarily in the way that they thought. He comes to them walking on the, the water. Could you? What would you think? You're in a boat. You've been striving all night. You're tired. It's been a long day, right? I mean... Put yourself in their position. You know, sleep deprivation. It's the middle of a storm. You're, you're, you're stressed out, right? And then you see what? Something walking on the water. Your first reaction is, oh, it must be God coming to join me. <laughs> no. Your mind starts playing with you, right? And so instantly, they, being Jews, okay, got to put yourself in their position, they instantly thought, because remember, the Sea of Galilee was, again, was the abyss for them. If to fall into the Sea of Galilee, to drown in the Sea of Galilee, was be, to be drowned into the abyss. Okay? It was a major thing for them. So, they're, they're on the abyss, if you would, right? In the middle of the storm, they're worrying about capsizing, whether they're going to even survive this thing, and they see a what? Ghost. Superstitious. Maybe so, but that's what they thought. They start getting worried. And Jesus cries out, knowing what they're thinking, and says what? Fear not. Chill out, guys. <laughs> Just C-H-I-L-L, chill. Fear not. It is I. This next part, I don't get. This next part, I, I can't tell you. I understand it. I, I fully don't understand this other than, again, sleep deprivation and everything else is going on. Because Peter says what? If it's really you, what? 
asked me to come out to you. What? If it's a demon, what do you think the demon's going to say? <laughs> come on, drown, buddy! <laughs> but Peter, I love Peter. I just love Peter. I don't know what he's thinking. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come on out. Okay, come on out. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because you, I'm thinking of the other eleven right now. They're looking at Peter. What? <laughs> and then before they could stop him and talk any sense into him, he does what? He steps out of the boat and he doesn't sink. I love the song Oceans. Let me walk upon the water. Let me go where I can't walk anymore, where my feet can't go. That I've got to trust you. It's all about faith. Peter gets out and he's walking up. He couldn't have walked there. The liberals love to say that there was a sandbar and all this kind of stuff. This is nuts. He, he falls off the sandbar, but Jesus knew where the sandbar was. This is nuts stuff. I mean, read the context. There's no way, right? He gets out and he's walking on water. What happens then? Say again. Well, he didn't rely. He does, but why? He takes his eye off Jesus. He takes his eyes off the Lord. I don't know whether he got a big spray coming into his face. And and it's just kind of, you know, like, then he looks like, what am I doing? You know, did he think that he was like sleepwalking or whatever? You know, I don't know. What am I doing? And the minute he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he places it on his own abilities, he falls. He, say again? They were woefully lacking. <laughs> yes, exactly right. He sinks, but he has enough chutzpah, enough remembrance to say what? Lord, save me. And Jesus reached down and he picks him up. How cold was that? Jesus joined them in their storm. But then Jesus delivered it. Now I want you to think about this, the authority of, of Christ here. Look at what it specifically says. When was the storm stopped? Was it when Jesus got in the boat? Was it when Jesus said, peace be still? When did the storm stop? When they got in the boat. When they entered the boat. When they entered the boat. Not when he entered the boat. But when they entered the boat, Jesus took Peter all the way through that trial and even brought him into a greater trial. Went from the trial to the greater trial. You know, but Peter walked with him willfully into it. And then he said, Lord, save me. The Lord reaches down and picks him up. Now, I don't know how this is playing out, whether the Lord's kind of holding him up by his shoulder or, or whether all of a sudden Peter's able to walk on the water again or how this plays out. I don't know how this plays out, where he's holding him by the scruff of his neck, you know, and he's just kind of dragging him out of the water. But when they, when they entered the boat, the storm ceased. Jesus delivered them. And to a T, every one of the disciples whoops, then looked at the deity of Christ. They recognized him for who he is. God allows trials in your life that he might reveal his power, his authority in your life. That you might know that he alone is God. When, when he does something for you that only he can do, 
you grow in your what? Faith. So Peter, at the very end of his epistle, final words to, his, to, his, to, to the believers out there, he tells us, he challenges us, he encourages us, he exhorts us, he commands us to what? But grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you growing in it? Chances are the Lord's allowing a lot of trials in your life, yeah? I'm looking back at Stacy and Ricky. It's been a bad month and a half, huh? But you get to watch God work faithfully through those times. So what sort of trials are you going through? You probably are. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. We read through James, in James chapter 1, verses that we don't like to, 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 to really read, right? But it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into what? Various trials. Count it as what? Joy. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's why I said I'll never be a doctor, because I keep losing my patience. Okay? But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So if you want to grow in perfection, if you want to grow in Christ, what has to come? Trials. But we don't want trials. But God allows us to go through trials. Because we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are, are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine that they might be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's purpose for your life, what he predestined you for, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's chapter, uh, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good. That's talking about what? <coughs> Trials. Remember, the Lord knows about the trial and has allowed it. It is for a reason. More than likely, it is for you to grow in His grace and in your knowledge of Him. How do you normally respond in your trials? In faith or in doubting? And finally, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? 